We're in Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to cover just a few verses here this morning, first three verses. But I want to give you an overview of this chapter. It's a powerful, powerful chapter. One of my favorite in all of the Bible. The chapter really addresses, in an overall sense, what it means to know the truth. Now, it's a great blessing that you and I possess that we have heard the truth that comes from God's own Spirit. God has given to us through His Word, through the Bible, His truth. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 for His disciples, you and me. He prayed that the Father would sanctify us in the truth or set us apart or make us different or unique or, in fact, holy in the truth. And then He specifies that Your Word, Father, is truth. So we have been given a great blessing to know the truth. And I've titled this series as we go through chapter 3, Finding Joy in Knowing the Truth. The joy of knowing what God intends for you, for me, for each one of us, and to live in the light of that truth. You see, I think a lot of us as Christians believe that this word, this book, is the word of God. We believe that. But I think where we oftentimes fall short is that while we believe that this is the word of God, we don't necessarily trust it to be sufficient to meet every need that we have. When things happen in our lives, do we first go to the word of God? to seek comfort and solace, direction, strength? Or do we go to some other source? Again, we we know this is the Word of God, but do we trust it for its sufficiency? And so as we go through chapter 3, I'm going to challenge you and myself to really address that question. Is where do we go for truth? Where do we go for the sufficiency for our lives. Not in theory, but in reality. So Paul's writing to the Philippians, and he says to them, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Now, I want to stop here for just a moment and talk about what it means to rejoice in the Lord. Now, all of us at different times rejoice in our circumstances. Something good happens to us, and we rejoice over the fact that this blessing has come to us. This good thing has come to us. And that's wonderful, and that's appropriate, but it's rather easy to do, isn't it? To rejoice in positive circumstances. Paul does not write to the Philippians that they are to rejoice when good things happen to them. But rather, he writes that they are to rejoice in the Lord. Jason, if you would put up 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul writes to the Thessalonians that we are to be joyful always, to pray continually, 
and to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So God has a will for us, and it's that we are always joyful, that we are continuing in prayer, and that regardless of our circumstances, we give thanks because we recognize that God works together all things for good to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. So he's always at work in our lives, church, regardless of whether it's something good, whether it's something difficult. God is at work in our lives. You know, Chris talked last week and, and back in November about Paul's statement that his imprisonment had worked out for uh, the advancement of the gospel. Because Paul, as a prisoner of Jesus Christ there, was able to witness to Caesar's household. And they all became aware of the fact that he was imprisoned for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So his circumstances certainly weren't what he would have preferred, no doubt. But in those circumstances, he was able to be joyful because he drew his strength and his joy from his relationship to God. And that's why it says here to rejoice in the Lord. There was a, an occurrence that is recorded in, uh, I think it's 1 Samuel chapter 30. It talks about David doing battle with the Amalekites. And the Amalekites had come and raided David's camp while he was out of the camp. And they took the women and the children and much riches away from the camp. And when David and his men returned, they saw that they had been attacked. And all of David's people that were still with him grumbled against David. In fact, they talked of stoning him. And the Bible says that David strengthened himself in the Lord. The people were upset, they were angry, they wanted to stone him, but David strengthened himself in the Lord. And I'm, I'm, I'm pointing this out because where do we draw our strength from as Christians? What does the Bible says, say is the source of our strength? The joy of the Lord, Nehemiah 8.10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So when you are connected to, in relationship with, Jesus Christ, what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians about being joyful always, praying unceasingly, giving thanks in all things, is something that you are able to do because you're in relationship with the one who created all things. And he is for you. His intention for you is good. Even though some of the things you go through may appear to be evil and even disastrous, health challenges, financial burdens, relationship struggles, even though those things are very hard and very difficult, in the midst of them, you can rejoice. You can look up and recognize, identify that you are in relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the truth. And that is why Paul says here that he wants them to remember to rejoice in the Lord. Not their circumstances, but in the Lord. And he says, it's no trouble for me to write that very thing to you again. Because in these first couple of chapters, he's reminded them 
about the importance of joy in our lives and that joy emerging from our connection to our relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're focusing on anything else than Jesus Christ, your joy is vulnerable. Satan comes, it says in John 10.10, to rob and to kill and to destroy. So when you're going through those circumstances, when you're having a relationship challenge, when you're financially strapped, when you are just at the end of your rope and you don't know what to do, where do you look for strength? To, To experience that depth of joy that transcends what you're going through. It's to Jesus Christ. It's to His Word. Rejoice in the Lord. Not in your circumstances, but in the Lord. In the truth that you are related to Him, that you are righteous in His sight because of His shed blood that covers you. All of these things. Now, Paul is saying this because he is getting ready to warn the Philippians about some potential dangers that exist. Now, he's already talked to them in chapters 1 and 2 about the danger that comes from within, that is pride, and the division within a fellowship that pride can cause. Paul gave us the solution to pride there in the first few chapters, or excuse me, first few verses of chapter 2, where he said that we are to have the mind of Christ Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others greater than yourself. And then he goes on to describe Jesus and how Jesus behaved with humility. So so we protect ourselves from that internal danger of pride through the practice of Christ-mindedness, humility. But now Paul is going to warn the Philippians about a danger that comes from outside of them. And this is the danger that every fellowship of believers faces. He says in verse 2, Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. So he is talking here about people who are coming into Christian fellowships with a message that runs counter to the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace. He's saying, watch out for those dogs. Now, dogs, of course, in this uh, section of Scripture is talking in a very derogatory way about the people who are coming along and sharing a message of works-based salvation. So Paul is using a derogatory term. It's interesting. The Jews used to call the Gentiles dogs. Here, Paul is calling the Jews dogs or those Jewish people who are coming into Christian fellowships and saying, in order to truly be saved, you must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Yeah, you can believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but you must also be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Go through all of the rituals that are expected in order to truly be saved. And Paul turns tables on them and calls them dogs. He calls them evildoers. People who literally are, through their message, sowing 
evil into Christian fellowships, doubt into the minds of believers. Now, this is one of the struggles, church, that we all have. Because there are two basic approaches to God. Now, there are many, many religions, and even within the Christian religion, there are numerous denominations. But it all distills down to basically two approaches to God. One, the gospel approach. Pure, unadulterated grace. You don't do anything, you don't deserve anything from God that merits his favor. We are dead, the Bible says, in our sins and trespasses. What can a dead person do to commend themselves? To take action. Nothing. So, grace says that we're dead in our sin and trespasses, but God, who is rich in grace and mercy, has extended to us through his son, the opportunity to come into fellowship with him through simple faith, through just believing what he has done on our behalf. There's nothing more that you have to do in order to be saved other than to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he lived a sinless life, that he died a sinful death, taking our sin upon himself, and that he rose from the dead on the third grave on the third day, for our justification. That's the gospel. And all we have to do is believe that. We are made righteous through that faith, the Bible says. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to keep the law of Moses. You don't have to flagellate yourself into the appearance of false holiness. You simply have to believe. But into these fellowships would come these Judaizers, That's what they were called. They would come into the fellowships that Paul had planted and they would give the message that Paul gave you only part of the truth. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but in order to truly be saved, you have to keep the law. You have to be circumcised. And that's what led to the first big Christian conference there in Acts chapter 15. Is that in fact the case? Do Gentiles have to keep the law of Moses? Do they have to be circumcised on the eighth day? What do they have to do in order to be saved? And the conclusion that the apostles arrived at was that there was absolutely nothing that they had to do. There were some things that were recommendations so as to not keep the gospel from moving forward. But for salvation, it was simple faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul is warning the Philippians about those who will come in to their fellowships and say, it's Jesus plus something. That's the other approach. Works. That there is something that you must do or can do to merit God's approval. That if you do certain things, then somehow you work your way into God's favor. And Paul, very, very boldly here says, that's not true. The people who proclaim that are dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. Now, we don't really have those people coming into our fellowship today so much, at least in the context of the Jewish faith, promoting Jewish ritualism. But we certainly have people who come into our fellowships and propagate the notion 
that there are things that we must do in order to be accepted by Jesus Christ. God doesn't really love you unless you behave in a certain way. God doesn't really accept you unless you are healthy, wealthy, and wise. If you are broken, impoverished, struggling with sin, that somehow God doesn't love you. It's not true. It's not true. The gospel of Jesus Christ is purely and simply grace. He loves us not because we're lovable, not because we're deserving, but because he's God, and that's how he operates. So we have to be very careful within fellowships to avoid the mindset of works-based Christianity that God somehow approves of us or accepts us in a preferred fashion if we do certain things. It's just not true, church. But how many of us have struggled with that? I know you have. I know you have. I'm not good enough. God doesn't love me because I blew it yet again, just as I talked about. We are condemned through that voice of the enemy who accuses us. And we somehow think that God does not love us. Not true. Not true. Paul says, For it is we, that is, we who believe in a grace-based salvation, who are the true circumcision, who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. So he gives some characteristics here of grace receivers, people who have received grace, who live by grace, who approach God based upon grace. He says, first, that we are the true circumcision. Jason, if you'd put up Galatians 6, 12 through 16. This is Paul writing to the Galatians, and he says, those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. But the only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh or add numbers to their following. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but what counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. So Paul is saying it's not circumcision. It's not the physical act of removing the foreskin that approves a person to God. It's not the keeping of the law because the reality is is that none of us keep the law. We'll go next week into Paul's uh, boast about his own uh, righteousness based upon the law. And he says, In comparison to knowing Jesus Christ, that righteousness is like a pile of dung. It's it's nothing. So so no one keeps the law. I I like to shoot baskets. In fact, Bill Dallas actually saw me at the um, community center shooting baskets one day. And one of the things I, I like to do is shoot free throws. 
to see how many I could make out of 100. And one day, I was on a hot streak. And I was up to 22 in a row. 22 in a row. Anybody in here besides me ever made 22 in a row? Okay. So I was patting myself on the back. 22 in a row. And then I missed. And I missed three in a row. So 22 out of 25. Not bad, 88%. Pretty good. So I went and I searched out what the record was for the most free throws made in a row. Anybody know what that is? 930 in a row by a guy named Bill Sharma. And then he missed. That's, that's the law. You might make 22 in a row. You might make 930 in a row, but guess what? You're going to miss. And the Bible says that when we fall short of one of the commandments, we are guilty of them all. So we can't keep the law. There is no way that we can, in our flesh, commend ourselves to God in a fashion that will impress him. But he is impressed by the cross of his son. He is impressed by the resurrection. He even says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So we are the true circumcision. We are the new creation, as he wrote to the Galatians. We have been made new. All of the old things passed away. So you say, oh man, Greg, it doesn't feel like that to me. It feels sometimes like that old man is still dragging me down. I get you. I know what you're talking about. But guess what? You're still not condemned. Yeah, you may have made 22 in a row, but then you dropped a, a few, a few banked off and didn't go in. But you know what? When God's looking at you, you know who he sees at the free throw line? Jesus. Jesus never misses. He doesn't see you or me. He sees Jesus. That's the new creation, church, that we are. We are a new creation in Christ. So when he's looking at us, he's looking at Jesus. Yeah, he is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. He is driving us towards a future that is perfect and wonderful. And as I read out of Revelation chapter 21, where he dwells among us. We're not there yet. But each and every day, We get up, we put on the new man, and we walk with the Lord. We're going to be talking about that in a lot more detail next week. Knowing that he loves us, he accepts us, that there is no condemnation because we are in Christ Jesus. We serve God by his spirit because we have the Holy Spirit within each one of us. We boast only in Jesus Christ. There is no other way to the Father but through him, and we put no confidence in the flesh. So when you compare yourself to someone else, you look at someone who is really seemingly spiritual, doing well, doing wonderful, great, rejoice for them. But don't compare yourself to them. Because that also is something that people in the church often do. We compare ourselves to others. Sometimes when we do that, we look pretty good. 
Other times, in comparison, we fall far short. But again, that is not the point. We put no confidence in the flesh. We serve God by His Spirit. We boast only in Jesus Christ because we are the true circumcision. We are new creatures in Christ. When Jesus looks at me, or excuse me, when the Father looks at me, He sees Jesus. When He looks at you, He sees Jesus. He's given you His Holy Spirit just like He's given me. We all have different stories. We all have different pathways that God has us walking upon. But the reality, church, the reality is that we are in Christ. New creation. All of the old things passed away. And that we can have a great boldness and confidence in the power of God's Spirit living within us. That's the truth. That's the truth. And you should find joy in that. Find joy in the fact that God loves you. And that he indwells you. That he will never leave you or forsake you. And that no matter how badly the accuser says you are doing, the truth is that you're accepted in the beloved. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us the hope that comes through the gospel that is unassailable, that there is no power in heaven or on earth that can bring it down. And so, Lord, I pray for each one of us that we would find joy in the truth that we know that you love us, that you have given us grace, that we are the true circumcision who serve you in the Spirit. And we place no confidence in the flesh, but all of our boast is in Christ Jesus. I pray that we would find great strength in that faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand up and conclude with that hymn written by Beethoven, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee.